welcome again to another edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. I'm here as always with the world's best co-host of the Southwest Climate Podcast, Mike Crimmins. The one and only co-host. Hi, Zach. How's it going? Yeah, we're doing something different this time around. Uh, we are actually bringing a third person into the mix to to give us his his take. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Paul Inya. Paul, uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, Zach and uh, Mike. It's glad to be here. A uh, longtime listener, first time uh, participant. So I'm happy to be a third wheel with you guys this week. No, it's so good. And I think that the listeners are like, thank God somebody else is on here finally. Yeah, so. this, is a, this is a good test for us because, uh, yeah, we, it's, it's good to have a different voice. And, and, and Paul is a, is a friend of the pod, somebody that we steal a lot of our material from on this podcast through the, through the years. So we have a Slack channel that, that pods, you know, you make, Paul, you make a frequent contributions here and don't even know it. And Mike, Mike <laughs> rarely gives you credit for it. I try and I've mispronounced your name every time that we've uh, we've talked about you too. <laughs> oh, I, I listen, so I know when you guys steal from me. But uh, <laughs> you know, so I uh, just you know more of an introduction. I work with the National Weather Service. I'm the Science and Operations Officer in the Phoenix office. So I think a lot of times when you guys refer to me, it's it's Paul in Phoenix. You don't try to pronounce my last name. But as part of the National Weather Service, I'm a public employee, right? So I share the knowledge and information. So it's not really like you guys are stealing, you're borrowing from, uh, it's a, a tax refund, if you will. The only other thing that I want to do by way of introduction before getting into uh, our conversation is, is just say, Paul, that you're our arch geographic enemy being uh, based in Phoenix. And, you know, you know, the rivalry between Tucson and Phoenix is, is alive and well, even on this pod. So uh, thank you for, uh, uh, for looking the other way and, and, and agreeing to come on. So... <laughs> It's hard to look, overlook the uh, Tucson-centric nature of the podcast, but uh, yeah, I try. <laughs> well, and, and, and for our listeners, that's exactly why we, we, we wanted you on here, because uh, you, have been, uh, you have been elbowing us for a long time now, saying it's not the Southwest Climate Podcast, it's the Tucson Climate Podcast. And there's some <laughs> truth to that. And, um, but what we wanted to do today, Paul, is, is you've been in the midst of doing your monsoon 20... 21, 21, geez, I forgot the year, right up. And Mike, we just can't let the 2021 monsoon die. And I and we just gotta keep it, it going. It really? We gotta keep it going. And so we wanted to get your 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 take on that, Mike, from a lot of the stuff that you've been working on, and particularly from Central Arizona perspective, and even beyond that. But but before that, I think it's worth mainly just for me. How about that? Uh, I hope hopefully other people will be interested too. But you're a science and operations op. Uh, science and operation officer, a Sioux at the National Weather Service. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that role does. Yeah, so each of our field offices across the country has a has a Sioux, has a science and operations officer. And we have 122 weather and forecast offices across the country. There's one down in Tucson, which is on the U of A campus, co-located there, ours up here in Phoenix. Uh, and then there's another one up in Flagstaff. So the three offices cover Arizona, uh, plus the Flagstaff, I'm sorry, the Las Vegas office covers a little bit of Arizona as well. So, so there's my position all over the country. Our job, the Sioux job, is to integrate new science and technology into the office and to train our staff of meteorologists. Each office has somewhere between, say, 10 and 15 operational meteorologists. So my position works to make sure that we're doing seasonal readiness training, that we're looking at new technology that's coming in, you know, how can we better use the radar data? How can we use satellite data? Satellites had, you know, a lot of big explosion and data availability the last few years. Uh, those are kind of like the bread and butter things that go on in the office. Other aspects are um, 
trying to work on tool like development and tools. So anything in-house software that we can kind of work on to make our jobs more proficient and provide better services. Uh, we integrate uh, work with university partners, BLA is onto the university. So working with you guys, uh, you know, is very much within the wheelhouse of what the Sioux position might do or collaborative research. So I've done uh, the Sioux in Arizona actually work together fairly well trying to work with folks at University of Arizona or, or Arizona State University or Embry-Riddle uh, Aeronautical University up in Prescott. They got pretty good meteorology program too. Um, so we work with them in kind of the uh, weather community that's here in Arizona. Uh, and then like we were talking a little bit earlier too, whenever we're kind of short staffed or people are on vacation or whatever, I pitch in my position with backfill operational shifts as well. So um, even though I'm a, a kind of administrative management position, I very much work a lot of operations. I guess that raised a question, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on the National Weather Service, but uh, I, I think it's relevant to this conversation. And that is, how much would you say that, that there's been progress in forecasting the monsoon? Or, or where, where, where are you guys right now on, on, on being able to, to make some important uh, you know, rainfall predictions or forecasts during, during the monsoon season? And how far has it come along? I think uh, it's interesting, a question I think that needs to, you kind of think about like what kind of time scale or aspect are you looking at? So I would say from, from my office, you know, we tend to, fo our focus is on a seven day forecast or so anything within the next, we, that's our our uh, charge that we, we work with. Um, so I think there's been a lot of progress, at least within what we provide in a seven day forecast in the last 10 to 20 years. So I've worked in Arizona in the Southwest for the last 15 years. So majority of my career has been been out here. You know, just thinking back to like when I first started working here, 2006, you know, any trying to do any kind of forecasting during, during the summertime beyond like tomorrow, it was kind of a, a bit of a wild guess, you know, what was going to go on. But I, you know, now you look at the data, we have so much model data that's available to us and there's so much more uh, observational data, big platforms that are feeding into these weather models that they do a pretty good job of forecasting, I would say like upswings in monsoon activity, you know, trying to get the kind of broad strokes of like up periods versus down periods. Models do fairly good on that kind of stuff. Um, when you start getting more focused, I think, in and like the, you know, what's going to go on today, that's improved quite a bit as well. The modeling there has improved drastically too. You know, down at University of Arizona, um, you guys have colleagues that are running WARF uh, weather research forecast models at really high resolutions. I've been doing that for a few years now. And then the NOAA National Weather Service has been steadily increasing its modeling capability as well. So we get much re higher resolution data, forecast data. So I think our ability to predict what's gonna go on, you know, has, has continuing steadily increased. I think part of the challenge in that though, is that you, our partners, our customers continually expect better and better forecasts, which makes sense, right? So it's not, it's kind of evolved, you know, just kind of, is it going to be a more active day or more active period? And it's kind of coming down more to like, is it the quintessential, you know, is it going to rain at my house kind of a thing? And it's, and that's okay. I mean, it's just like more specific information we can provide the better because it starts having a lot of real impacts. So, you know, now we're, looking at storm scale type of forecasting, you know, trying to figure out how much is going to rain in very specific locations or what the potential is there so that we look at the like flash flooding aspects, which cause so much uh, problems and damage here during the monsoon. To back out a bit, you know, you think about the seasonal forecasting, which I think is kind of where you guys tend to live in the, in the podcast, you know, I think there's still a lot of challenges in that aspect. You know, a lot of the, the climate models that are run to do that kind of forecasting 
are still, I mean, they've obviously improved over time, all the, all the climate and weather models improve over time, but the resolution that they tend to run on don't do a good, as good a job resolving the features that, that transpire during the monsoon or lead into it that allow for the prediction of those kinds of conditions. And you're also dealing with, you know, to an extent, basically a, a tropical air mass. So very subtle differences can have big ramifications. So, you know, little changes here and there, or there's still tons of research that goes on looking at, you know, slight uh, temperature, sea surface temperature anomalies on like the other side of the planet and how might they impact how the monsoon develops. So I mean, there, there certainly has been a lot of steady progress, but there's obviously a ton of work to go, um, I think, on the seasonal aspect. Yeah, it's funny. I. Uh, I, I normally just like slack Mike and ask Mike, he's sort of my bespoke weather forecaster, but this year I paid uh, a lot of attention to the wharf models. And I, I have to say, I was actually kind of surprised at how, um, how bad I was and how good the wharf was. <laughs> well, I actually thought the wharf was like really good. I mean, yeah, I mean, the spatial, getting the, the spatial uh, signature right is challenging, but I was actually pleasantly surprised, but maybe it was just a function of, of this year being, I don't know, was it a relatively easier year to forecast because it was a really active year? And, and, and would that, I guess it would also be a relatively, last year was probably easy to forecast. It was just like, no, no activity, you know? So I don't know. I was just, I guess I was just like pleasantly surprised by, by, by paying attention. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question for Paul too, is kind of in this progression of forecasting technology and modeling is and, and maybe it's kind of a question for the summer too, is was it, was it a little more hands-off this summer? I know you were super busy because it's, it's the impact-based forecasting that comes on then too, right? Or it's dealing with the issues of warnings and stuff like that. But have the models gotten to the point where, have it, has it made it easier for you as a forecaster to kind of focus on other things? Is it a little more hands-off or are you still kind of, is it, is it as much work to kind of adjust the forecast and maybe in the context of like this last summer too? I think, um, you know, Zach's question too about, or how, comment about how good it looked this summer, I think, yeah, you're right. And that part of it is that there were some pretty good periods where there was distinct forcing going on. There was certain weather systems that were sparking a lot of the thunderstorm activity. So it was a little bit easier to forecast some of those aspects this summer. If it's like a typical, a little bit more typical monsoon where you just have a lot of recycled moisture underneath the monsoon high, and it's kind of like trying to figure out where the little bubbles in a boiling pot of water are going to show up there. That's a lot more difficult kind of a thing. You know, this summer, there was a lot of instances where there was a spoon moving around in the pot. And so it was a lot easier to kind of figure out what was going to go on. Um, That's so, a great way to look at it. It's a good analogy. I like that. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome. And, uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Mike, Mike can't steal that now without attributing it to you. I'm writing it down. So the worst certainly did benefit from that, but you know, there is, again, there's that steady progression because the, these, the larger scale weather models that like that my agency runs, you have the GF, like the flagship one is the GFS, right? The global forecast system that runs four times a day does it predicts 15 days into the future and it covers the entire planet. And it has a nominal resolution right now of about 13 kilometers. So that means that it can't resolve anything that's more than 26 kilometers wide, essentially. And thunderstorms are not, you know, obviously 26 kilometers. I mean, you're talking about the size of a city at that point, essentially. So they parameterize the convection, they fake it. You know, they put in the, they kind of change the physics to simulate what would happen if there's thunderstorms. Things like the WERF and then the uh, other flight, the WERF that is being run locally there. One of the models that we use and everyone uses now, the high resolution rapid refresh, the HER model, you know, that's running every single hour. And these models are running more at the scale of two to three kilometers. So they don't have any parameterization. They are 
running at sharp enough resolution where they can let the thunderstorms happen by themselves within the model. And they do a, a pretty good job of figuring it out. So the WERFs or the HER model, they might not explicitly say, you know, it's going to rain at Mike's house today, but it's not going to rain at Zach's house. But they certainly give you a very, very good indication of the flavor of the day of like what's going to happen, what the potential is. It's really important for us as meteorologists not to take these models verbatim and say that, you know, just the east side of Tucson is going to get storms today or the West Valley in Phoenix is going to get storms today. You know, we really need to kind of take them as consider the uncertainty that comes along in using these models. But there's so much of them now and like the her updates every single hour. So you can get, you know, essentially a, a poor man's ensemble. You can get a time leg ensemble just looking run after run after run of like, what is it doing? And it gives you more opportunity to think what's going to happen. And then to kind of go into like, Michael, you were asking, I mean, it does allow us to focus more on the impact-based decision support forecasting. That is really what the agency is charged with now. Actually, the agency just changed its mission statement to include those words in there. So, you know, 10 years ago, we might spend a lot of time forecasting during the summertime in our gridded forecast and whatnot, just on, not today, but what's going to happen four, five, six, seven days from now. Now, like at least in like my office, that that process is getting pretty darn automated to this mm. point, you know, where we are focusing a lot more on the, so what of the forecast, like what does this mean and what is this going to happen? And then communicating that out. And then of course, when you get into the, the thick of it and the storms are actually happening, I mean, that's when you're issuing all the warnings and it just... Um, you know, trying to stay on top of a mesoanalysis and see how the conditions are changing to impact where and when we're issuing warnings. So that can become, you know, it just, that's when everything's going crazy, of course, in the office. Yeah. And it seems like my personal opinion is we're not going to automate away the human element for, for some of this stuff. Like we're not going to have self-driving forecast stations, I think, like that are going to be, you know, totally, because I think there was a thought at one point, like the models get so good you wouldn't need anybody at this point. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, talking even a little bit more about modeling, like one thing I was kind of watching that we had uh, happen a few times here is that the next iteration, like the next generation of models and the warning is the whole warn on forecast system that walks. And the idea behind there is that you have like super high resolution models that are running, um, you know, like well under a kilometer and that they're frequently updating, like even sometimes every 15 minutes and they're running for just a couple of hours out into the future, like maybe three to six hours. So the idea there is that they can actually take storms that are already in existence and do a high resolution uh, projection of like, where are they going to go? And you could actually use the model data. So the, the goal or the theory would be use the actual model data to issue the warnings of what's going to happen. So I, it's obviously going to be a lot more, I think the next reach goal for something like that is like if you have a tornadic supercell that's going to continue for four hours, you know, something like that, a, a warn on forecast system might work or a big bow echo moving through the plains. It'll work fine there. Around here, I think it's going to be a lot more challenging. We did have a few uh, instances that they're running this kind of in a test right now. So the domain moves around the country every day when they're testing it out. And I got opportunity to watch it a couple of times when it was out here in the Southwest. And it, it gives interesting, I think, useful information about like potential for rainfall rates from thunderstorms and things of that nature. So that kind of cue, cues you into the flash flood potential, but it's not there yet where it's, you know, you could be issuing flash flood warnings because this model tells you it's going to rain three inches four hours from now in this one location. It's not there yet, but that's where the science is definitely going. That's amazing. That's that amazing. All right, Paul. So let I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this last monsoon season. I mean, Mike and I, over the, the course of the last three or four pods, have kind of narrated 
uh, at least from our perspective, how the monsoon unfolded and the kinds of things that we thought were interesting and unique and maybe not so unique. And I'm just curious, like, you know, when you're running NOAA in 10 years, right? And Mike and I are, are, are still like in our pajamas, like talking on this pod to ourselves pretty much. And we're, ta- we're looking back on the 2021 monsoon, you know, we're going to say certain things. What, what, what would you say about the 2021 monsoon? What do you think we're going we're gonna to be left with in 10 years? If you do want to run the weather service, the job is open right now, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, Louis Uccellini <laughs> is retiring. And if you go to usajobs.gov, you can actually find the- uh, I got a shot. Sure. I would write your letter of recommendation and reference, Paul, if <laughs> well, you want I, it. I, so. I, I got to scratch out my next question there. <laughs> when, when the National Weather Service says a 50% a chance for rain, what does that actually mean? But we'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> so the one term like you guys have been saying a lot is generational, right? I think you said that early on when things got going pretty quick in late June and kind of July went, went nuts. And then the kind of question was, does this still kind of generational as things kind of were petering out in August? And from a you kind of think about maybe from a return interval perspective. I certainly think that this was a monsoon that was the level of activity was pretty high and you could maybe argue it's generational. Like if something that has a return interval of like 20 years, right. Or something that happens maybe every 15, 20, 25 years, that'd be generational kind of terminology. I don't think you guys were off base saying something like that. So, I mean, it was very, it was very active, you know, from our perspective, looking at some of the data, you know, it was not across the Southwest region. So the write-up you mentioned earlier I'm working on is kind of looking at Arizona, New Mexico, and, and far West Texas. You know, it wasn't the wettest monsoon across that entire area. There were parts of Arizona that did have their, their wettest uh, monsoon. Uh, kind of is actually interesting, little, an area that was a little bit Northeast of Phoenix up in the mountains seemed to resolve itself as being the wettest on record. So we, the weather service offices, issued a record amount of different types of warnings. So a record amount of flash flood warnings. So I'm looking at that right now, this last monsoon. Previous to this one, the most flash flood warnings issued was back in 2013 when 536 flash flood warnings were issued across the region. And this year we issued 884. So it was a drastic increase from that record. And you compare that to last year when we issued 110, which was the fewest on record. So, um, you know, it, it was it, obviously a very active monsoon. It wasn't, again, the wettest. I mean, there have been other ones recently, which have been pretty wet, like 2014 was one that was pretty wet across the region. Um, I think you go back to like 2006 was like the first summer I was here. That was a very active one. It was very high end, uh, severe weather one as well. So it, it was certainly busy. I mean, I, you know, we obviously felt it in the offices with the amount of services that we were needing to provide based on, on the weather activity. So that's interesting, Mike, I'll let you chime in here, but I wanted to get this out. It's like one thing that Mike and I struggle with on when, when we're doing this pod, but also like in the background when we're, we're thinking about how to do this pod is just how to like talk about all of the different variability within a, a regional perspective. So you were, you were mentioning that like it wasn't, it was historic for some areas, if, if you will, like some areas received the, the highest on their record. You know, Tucson, I think came in at, at, at at third uh, at the airport. And of course, there's a ton of variability just within Tucson. So, and some other places didn't receive maybe middle of the road, if, if you will, but characterizing the monsoon, which is a little bit of a folly, but I guess when I was listening to, I'm like, I'm thinking, well, I thought I was underplaying a little bit the generational because I agree that it's sort of like not 
uh, you know, it's like every 20 years, like the recurrence interval, like you, you said, but I'd almost say that I think like if you looked at the aggregate and some metrics that this season had to be in the top five for in aggregate. So if we looked at Arizona, New Mexico, or the core monsoon re- region, I mean, wh- what would you say about that? Do you think that's, that's a little bit overwrought or um, would you give me that? <laughs> I know. So I looking at the, you know, Mike and I talk about, a lot about this, like looking at the precept data and trying to figure out, you know, which ones are the right ones to use and the rankings and stuff like that. But the, so the NCEI gridded data for this region I'm looking at was the 22nd wettest on record. So that's not very high, you know, to say, to try to come out and say like, this was the wettest monsoon ever. And then it's like, oh, it only ranked 22nd, you know, and this goes back to 1895. So I mean, and what, and, and that's the, over what, what um, domain, spatial domain. So that was Arizona, New Mexico, and then far like the West Texas panhandle. I am actually surprised at that. Well, yeah, and I know we I, talked. Well, I was going to well, say I, that I, the generational thing is, is that, I mean, I'm, I got your back on the generational Zach, but I, I think that if you're a cat in Tucson, generational monsoon, like totally. Like, I think if if that's your lifespan, you nailed it. But then, yeah, I think that we, the stats started to kind of, I don't know, they started to slide a little bit as the season went on. And I do think that we ran into this year, the Tucson Phoenix Metroplex wet problem (laughs) where it, it, for the per capita monsoon index, I think comes into play this year in particular, I think the impact of the monsoon on people was pretty dramatic across the Southwest, but spatially it, it, it kind of fell apart to the, it wasn't quite as wet across the Northeast part of the state. And then as you got into Northern New Mexico, Northern New Mexico didn't, it didn't really have yeah. anything epic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the bullseye of the rain was sort of Tucson to Phoenix area, which was, yeah, as you mentioned, at least for Arizona, it's the bulk of the population. So the precipital water was pretty high across the stuff. I don't, I don't want to argue the, you know, top five. I'll have to dig more into the, I am surprised though, that it, that, that data set only produced the 22nd wettest, but yeah, maybe I'm. With what Mike's saying though, too, I mean, looking at, looking at the mapping of it, it certainly was, you know, except it was exceptionally wet for like the Phoenix area down into Tucson, kind of like the lower desert areas was quite high, but then you know, like Albuquerque, it looks like it had a pretty ho-hum summer, you know, like if you, it, it certainly feels like that there was maybe somewhat population bias, like Mike was saying, is that because you had 6 million people that were basically like, oh my God, like this is what monsoons used to be or something like that. And it's like, sure. I mean, if that's where you live, that's fine. You know, and that's your, that's your experience. But if you start, you know, stepping back and kind of taking a broad, broad review and aggregating this stuff, you know, the, the story kind of becomes, it, it was a bit more targeted where it happened. Yeah. 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 It was just like watching the, watching the, the monsoon even evolve across Tucson. Tucson had corners of the town had really different monsoon. I mean, it kind of evened out over time and it was just a lot of rain everywhere, but there were points where part, like just half of Tucson pulled ahead by a two or three inch event. And then it would go quiet. And then another part, I mean, it was, it was that to me really, that impressed upon me was some of that spatial variability and that heavy precept that really was kind of the lower desert locations. I mean, it was up by you guys. It was here in Tucson, but you didn't, I don't know. Did, did we see those kinds of heavy precip events that were really clobbering the low deserts in some of the other parts of the state? I can't even really remember. I don't know. I think it's a little hard to tell because I think the, the heaviest rain, like the mountains tend to get 
the frequency of the rain, right? But then, and I think Mike, you make some of these maps, right? That look at the rainfall intensity, but yeah. the, the higher intensity ends up happening usually at the lower elevations because there's a lot more instability available to the thunderstorm. So, you know, to an extent, you know, there's going to be some proportionality between the instability of the Cape and the precip uh, intensity, I would say. So, uh, you know, even in like you're talking about though, like even in the Phoenix area, just in Phoenix being so much bigger, even too spatially, you know, it's, there's some, there's obviously a lot of days where, you know, like North Scottsdale, some places are going to get two to three inches of rain. And then it doesn't even rain across the rest of the, the majority of the city. So it's, it, you know, the, I, you know, I'd be kind of curious to know what it's like very locally to you, to Tucson, like how it gets covered. Cause here it's like, it's never, everyone gets rain, you know, it's pretty rare that actually happens. So we do have the Phoenix rainfall index. We, we developed a number of years ago and have that data that ran back to 1990 to try to get a sense of what was the spatial, coverage of, of days like rains and typically based on that historically we only have one or two events or days a, a summer where everyone gets rain so even when the thunderstorms come in it's pretty unusually typical for everyone to get rain it's just yeah that's a really good that's point. how it goes here winners and losers right yeah what did this yep. year come in at do you recall uh as far as the amount yeah like so so that the, i mean it's a 20-year record so uh it's a, i got 30 years so i do have it back to oh yeah 30 years 1990 sorry yeah so, math, so math the, on the fly was never my strong suit so the metro average was uh 5.85 inches so just about six inches it was uh just eyeballing quick looks like it was second to 2014. 2014 wow i know 2014 was when we had the record the record day you know in phoenix the three 3.3 inches at the airport or what is day on record and there was parts of the metro that had four five six inches of rain oh yeah that was this, that september event with the tropical remnant or something like that right Norbert, yeah september or... september 8th yeah yeah okay yep yep that totally i think it was one of those it was one of the the tropical remnants i don't think i mean i think it was remnant or just the moisture yeah i can't i can't i always get the the names yeah it was norbert i'm just looking at the little write-up on our website quick norbert i've learned not to question you when you like recall like you for some reason you have this like almost photographic memory of weather events it's weird it's weird and i probably am about right half the time you just don't question me so well yeah because my mine is not very good so <laughs> <laughs> so another thing paul i'm just curious like you know mike and i always sort of talk about try to talk about what the what the monsoon changed in the way that we were thinking about the monsoon and some nuance of the monsoon that you know sort of makes me learn a little bit and I, I mean, I don't know from your perspective, because this is, you know, you look at this at a level of detail and, and, and through a lens that I don't, but I'm wondering if like that happens to you. And if so, uh, what, what might this monsoon have, have, have taught you? You know, I don't know. I think I've learned to always be prepared to see things that you don't think are possible. You know, I think that's part of our challenge we always have to have with our situational awareness. And it's something I, I struggle with too, you know, at times where it's, you have to be don't be, don't shut your mind to things that are going on, you know, so be prepared for things that can happen outside the, what you think might be the envelope, the range of possibilities. So, you know, I think we kind of like in the office, we were geared up more towards the idea that this summer, you know, could be busy, probably would be busier, you know, it's hard. Last year was so dead, but you know, last summer was like, well, 2019 was so slow. How could this year be any worse? And then it's like, well, last year happened. And so, are you guys yeah, mad when that happens? Were you guys mad last year? This sucks. Myself? No. I mean, it's like the, 
you know, either way, it's going to have costs that come with it, right? So if it doesn't rain here, then we end up with our hottest summer on record, which right, is right, terrible right. and has its impacts. But then if you go to the flip side and you have a very busy summer and it rains all over the place and you have flooding and then you have the impacts that come from that. So, I mean, there's, you know, it's kind of a no-win no situation. There's always going to be problems that happen around here during the summertime. So, you know, people work in our office, you know, get into this job, obviously, because they like doing the work and they like providing the service that we provide. Um, so, you know, maybe on some level you want to see some kind of thunderstorm activity and it's good to like, you know, you get the rain during the summertime, obviously, and it helps knock the temperatures down and whatnot. But I don't know if everyone is chomping at the bit for it to be as, you know, kind of wild as it was this summer and then kind of, the you know, and all the bad things that, that come with that as well. So, right. you know, I think we just kind of watch and, and see when we, we, we just roll with it, you know, whatever comes at us, you know, we, we're going to deal with it every day after day. So it must have been exhausting. I was watching the map one day when you had all of those flash flood products or, or flood products more generally up at the same time. I mean, just like the handoff from one forecaster to the next must be like kind of a nightmare with like, oh my God, all that stuff going on. Well, and that kind of raises the question. It's like, what, what changes differently? What, what, what's, what's different when, you know, between two years ago and, and or last year and this year? You know, we jump into our warning services whenever we have to. I mean, we're always ready for that. We staff differently during the summertime. You know, if we're getting into active weather, we plan ahead. You know, we use use our own information ourselves, you know, to try to figure out if we're expecting it to be busy. We'll line up to have more people in the office to cover those services. I mean, we're very much are thinking of like, you know, looking at our day shift, you know, or do they need to come in early? Do they need to stay late? We need to get another person in on their day off. You know, we need to, you know, when it's busy, when we have these big events going on, it's not unusual for us to have, you know, five, six people in the office um, for us. So it's quite, there's quite a workload that goes with it that, you know, maybe not everyone would think about besides we, you know, are issuing the flash flood warnings and the severe thunderstorm warnings. There's also a lot of communication aspect that goes on. You guys see like all the social media activity that gets put out. There's always media activity that comes with, you know, with this mm -hmm. uh, activity as well. We provide other services as well, like for us in the Phoenix area, like the aviation services doing the forecast for the airports, like Sky Harbor Airport. I mean, that's very critical work that, that goes on there. And there's special warnings that happen with the airport whenever thunderstorms are moving close into them. So, you know, it does require a lot of extra work on our part. So we just, you know, we flex and we stretch and we do what we need to do to get through it. So kind of reflecting on the monsoon again. So you wrote up a couple of several actually really nice storm summaries that are on the, the Phoenix weather site. So which of those was kind of the standout one? Like what was the big event for the Southwest, if not Arizona? Was it, was it the July one or was it the, the subsequent? There was August one three-day event that where that low came west to or east to west. Yeah. It was like these retrograding upper level lows seem to be like the crazy things this summer. Yeah. I think um, I'm just looking at the different <laughs> write-ups we did. I, to some aspect, I, I'm not very good. My memory is not very uh, great for weather events, maybe like apparently Mike's or something. But, uh, <laughs> stand out. I don't, stand I, out. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I wear so much weather, it all tends to just blur into this background of never-ending uh, never weather. Never-ending 500 uh, millibar height level map. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is why we have the computers. They remember for me. So, I mean, the... The July event, yeah, I mean, we did have that big uh, inverted trough upper level low that moved through from New Mexico. And, you know, that gave us like multiple days of active severe weather. And that's just kind of a, a really known severe weather pattern when you get that good northeast flow coming out of uh, northern New Mexico that just constantly is pushing dumping storms down into the low elevation. So, 
I mean, that was pretty active. I mean, we had the big wind events that happened. So we're talking like, a, yeah, so there was a big low, you know, when we get these northeast winds, which is part like something I wanted to look at a little bit more in the analysis of how, what was the frequency of these northeast wind events? Because that's just known severe weather pattern for us. I think it's the, uh, the old, uh, uh, old monsoon patterns. Mike, I think, what were those ones? Yeah, they, like, there's like a trapping high one and there's like the, the, the Maddox 4 Maddox, severe yeah, weather right. types. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's like the Maddox 4, I think, is that one where it's yeah. kind of get the, the high amplitude. The ridge moves quite a bit north uh, of the four corners even. So um, so that, that kind of stood out. There was the event we had where uh, like a big, I don't know if I call it, almost like a little bit of a boaca moved across the Phoenix area and pretty much everyone got, you know, 50 plus mile an hour winds. Um, then that ended up kind of laying down and causing a lot of uh, very heavy rain. And that kind of, that led into the Gila Bend flash flood uh, incident that happened. All right. And I, and just like a lot of days we had, you know, we had so many burn scars that my office was monitoring, you know, when these wildfires happen earlier in the season and then they leave behind these burn scars. That's usually something we have to actively monitor for like three to four years for enhanced flash flood potential. And we had 10 in my office that we would have to watch. So not only are we looking for flash flooding that's occurring anywhere, we have to have this hyper focus on all these, on all these burn scars. So it almost takes two people to do the flash flood warning services where one person is just solely watching those flash flood burn scars. And we issued end up issuing a lot of warnings on those uh, burn scars. And some of them had some pretty bad flooding that happened like up into the globe area in particular. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm envisioning like a command center in the National Weather Service offices with like 15 screens. Is that how it works? Have you never been to a weather service office? I haven't. Actually, really? I've the FEMA one. Remember the FEMA one that? Oh, um, yeah. That's yeah. what I, that's what I, I've, I, well, no, I have, you know, right, right next door, but I've actually never seen like, I've never seen like an active, you know, in the monsoon, if, if, if there's sort of like a command center set up, I, I don't know, I'm envisioning things differently. But what, yeah, what, the offices are, they're set up like, you know, EOC is like emergency operations center. So in my office, in most offices now we have like, oh, let's call a situational awareness display of the SAD. On my, my office, we have 12 flat screen TVs up on the wall and they show all sorts of different things so that we can try to keep tabs on everything that's going on. And then we have all the workstations in the ops area that the forecast was work at. And those ops area, we have six workstations that are in there, plus a few others that are scattered about uh, through the office. So, I mean, if things are like really busy, we could certainly have eight to 10 people working in the office. Wow. So one of those TVs always has something fun on it. So like what, what do you get to, to control <laughs> that one TV? I mean, we control the weather information that goes on them. Of course, there's uh, f out of the 12, four of them we use for local news broadcasts or just watching the local over the air kind of stuff, because it can be really handy. You know, if there's like a dust storm that's rolling in and we're watching it and trying to figure out what's going on, you know, these guys will send their choppers up, their news choppers up and put eyes on it. It's like, you know, we use that information just as much as anyone else looking at it and just kind of in awe. We're using it to actually figure out, you know, what's the expanse of coverage and how bad might this dust storm be. Totally. I think I was in a weather service office once though. And I noticed like, it was like, cause I get it. You guys have to have all the network TV. It was like days of our lives was on. It was like all this technical information and like days of our lives was on in one corner because <laughs> it had a scroll on the bottom of it, but it was just, it was kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, it might be a uh, press your luck or something now. I don't know what it was on daytime TV. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. I, I do like the, the Wayne Brady um, new, uh, new version of let's make uh, a deal. Let's make a deal. Yep. That one does it. <laughs> So Paul, would want to be conscious of your time here. We could talk a long time about this. We should do this again. But um, <clears throat> you mentioned before you, you you guys were sort of 
thinking as you were coming into this, this season that it was, you're expecting it to be a little bit busy. And probably that was in part because last year was so dead. So it's like, what's the chance this two years in a row, but like any thoughts on, 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 I mean, you just, everything's in play next year or like, I mean, that's a You're asking for, you're asking for 2022 outlook already. Yeah, I am. We can cut this part. (laughs) I mean, uh, Hold on, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to the source so I can tell the company line. Let's. It's equally likely that next summer will be uh, wet or dry. I I love that response. You're actually asking about next year. <laughs> no, it's it's funny because like this is another thing that we don't struggle with. That we sort of have like these internal conversations a lot because prior to the to the season, I mean, that's the thing that everybody wants to know. It's like, well, what's the monsoon gonna be like? And it's like some folks will put out some expectations, slightly tilting the odds one way or the other based on some nuance in the land surface or the atmosphere somewhere in the globe. But like, there's, there's, there's no real good indications. I'm sure you hold that perspective too. And obviously from the weather service year, you take it one day at a time. Yeah. I mean, there's the outlooks that the Climate Prediction Center puts out. I mean, that's what we, you know, obviously use and we speak to. There's, you know, the predictability, you know, as we talked about earlier during the summertime, I think is still pretty pretty challenging, you know, and to what utility I think some of those are used, I would also, you know, openly ask because, you know, we're always working with a lot of different partners, a lot of emergency management partners and whatnot. And it's just that outlooks from like a, perhaps a listener of the podcast, you know, like it maybe gives you some heads up of like what the summer might be like some anticipation, but I mean, even myself, like I'm not going to go buy enhanced homeowner's insurance for the summer or something like that. You know, I mean, it's just the summer kind of comes and goes and it's not a problem until it is for you. Like, I mean, until you're in the situation where there's too much rain where you're at and now you're dealing with flooding or you're driving someplace and there's flash flooding conditions. Or, I mean, honestly, the way more deadlier aspect that we haven't even touched on, but is the, the heat aspect of the summertime. I mean, everyone gets really excited and, and worked up on the thunderstorm activity and the precipitation, which, you know, is, is important. But the heat every summer kills two orders of magnitude more people in Arizona than lightning or flash flooding pretty much ever could. So, wow. I mean, last year was a record number of heat-related deaths. There was over 500 heat-related deaths in Arizona. This summer, despite it being you know notably cooler than last summer, last year was our record hottest summer, despite it being notably cooler this summer, you're still having hundreds of deaths that are happening Maricopa County is pretty much on pace this summer as they were with last summer. Um, you know, and there's a lot of factors that, that go into that when you start looking at who's being impacted by the heat. But it's just it, it, it takes a much bigger toll on our communities, I think, than the, than the thunderstorm aspect of the summer. You know, that's a really important point to accentuate. And we do focus on the rain more than the, the temperature side of things. Oh, you pointed out. I'm sorry, Zach, you pointed out, too, we were talking on Slack is that we were, we were kind of kicking this idea around too, is looking at, you know, we can look at the top three, you know, wettest summers or something like that. Like those past summers of, you know, in the sixties and the fifties, there were so much cooler than this particular summer. And you, you kind of pointed it out. I mean, like we, this, I'm looking at the climate at a glance here from NCEI. And so the July through September, and that's, that's excluding the heat of June too. It was the 11th warmest um, three month period on record. So it's got that, that trend right in there. Yeah. And so your point though, Mike, is that had this kind of a summer, cause there is a correlation between rainfall and, and temperature. 
Yeah. When, when like, like last year it was, it was, what did you say, Paul? It was record, record hot or it was, it was a really hot year because there was no rain, right? The, the rain brings, you know, obviously evaporative cooling and, 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 and clouds and, and whatnot. So there is that, that, that correlation. And yeah, I mean, last summer with, you know, the, basically the failure of the rain to show up, then we just sat under the sun and baked for the, for the summer. And that's not as surprising when you, when you don't have the cloud cover, when you don't have the rainfall to help cool things. And then you throw in the climate change signal. I mean, that, you know, easily gets us our hottest summer on record, but even this summer with all the rain that parts of Arizona got, the temperatures were barely below average. And that's even with using the newer 1991 to 2020 normals, which are, you know, much higher than temperatures were even half a century ago. So, I mean, the climate temperature wise has absolutely shifted and you just see it. I mean, it's so, so stark how much hotter it's gotten here during the summertime. And it's really, you know, it's unfortunate to see that even, even again, with all that rain, all that cloud cover, you still can barely cool the temperature down um, during the summertime. So, I mean, the, the impacts from the heat are, are significant and that's not going to change. I mean, there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of work to try to mitigate those impacts, but that's, you know, an unfortunate as aspect of the climate here is that they're just going to keep getting worse. And especially as you get more and more people moving here. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks. That was the point that I wanted to make. Like had this season happened 50 years ago, it would have been not as hot as it obviously as hot as it was. And that's the, 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 the climate, the, the trend that we're seeing here is, uh, been pretty pretty persistent and yeah we've got yeah, a, we, we the, the climate changed so much i mean we just can't get the cooler temperatures that we got you know half a century ago i mean on on any particular day sure you know you can get a real intense thunderstorm that maybe pushes the temperature down in some areas into like the 70s and and a asos or a weather sensor picks that up and it's the coldest coldest july day on record or something like that like that that can happen still those kind of real extreme outlier kind of one day events but when it starts looking at multiple days and weeks and, and months and seasons it, it's just shifted way too much now all right paul any anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't get a chance to talk about we could do this again uh, maybe not for the monsoon but certainly can can do a a, a winter sort of uh paul conversation later but anything else that you want to talk about before uh he's got to come in and just represent phoenix you know, every once in a while, you got to drop in and say, you guys, what's up? Come on. <laughs> it's, it's our Southwest extends beyond those mountains you guys see out your backyard. <laughs> it's, it's true. Our poor Albuquerque listeners, too. Like, wait, yeah, well, maybe we'll do a Southwest roundup where you bring in the, what's going on and up in Albuquerque? <laughs> um, uh, so yeah. tell us a little bit about where we can find. So you're doing a write up, uh, Monsoon Recap 2021. It's going to be the filled with, really cool graphics and, and, and whatnot. Where, where, where do people go to get that? Uh, so if they're patient and wait probably a few more weeks, so there's still a lot of data to parse through. Um, and so kind of trying to figure out, try, trying to answer a little bit of the why this summer played out the way it did. So a little bit of attribution. Hopefully we'd like to get that out here probably by mid-November and that would be up on our website. People could find that weather.gov slash Phoenix. Or if people follow us on our social media channels, we'll, we'll put it out there at some point too. But the uh, website probably be the best place to find that stuff. And the previous write-ups that you were mentioning, uh, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, a lot of good resources there. Awesome, Paul. That was that was great catching up. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for your your, your time here and your, your, your insight and, and all the background work that you do to, to help us out, even though you didn't know that you are doing it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. 
Are you guys going to, uh, is uh, it going to be a part two to the podcast? Are you going to talk Enzo? Or are you recycling yeah. from uh, 10 years ago? <laughs> I think we're going to. You'll never, you'll know, well, you'll know, but it'll probably, well, maybe you won't. I mean, yeah, you got to go back and listen to every single one of them, though. <laughs>